Hi, welcome to Medicines and Stuff podcast. My name is Jerry Kempney. I'm a GB-based pharmacist independent prescriber, and here I talk about medicines and variety of healthcare topics to help you to learn more about this fascinating stuff. This podcast contains information for educational purposes only and does not constitute medical or other professional advice. This episode is about stop-start criteria. Stop-start criteria or toolkit is a medication review tool designed to identify medication where the risks outweigh the benefits in the elderly and vice versa. Stop stands for screening tool of older person's prescriptions and START stands for screening tool to alert to right treatment and it was first published in 2008 by 18 member expert panel from academic centers in Ireland and the UK. It was reviewed, updated and expanded in 2015 for the purpose of minimizing inappropriate prescribing in older people. It is over 65 years old. This stop start version 2 consists of 114 criteria, 80 stop and 34 start criteria. First we go through stop criteria where we have 13 sections containing medicines to consider stopping in patients over 65. Section A. Number 1. Any drug prescribed without evidence-based clinical indication. Number 2. Any drug prescribed beyond recommended duration where treatment duration is well defined. Number 3. Any duplicate drug class prescription, for example, two concurrent NSAIDs, SSRIs, loop diuretics, ACE inhibitors or anticoagulants. Section B. Cardiovascular system. Number 1. Digoxin for heart failure with normal systolic ventricular function with no clear evidence of benefit. Number two, verapamil or diltiazem with New York Heart Association class three or four heart failure because it may worsen heart failure. Number three, beta blocker in combination with verapamil or diltiazem as a risk of heart block. Number four, beta blocker with bradycardia. The heart rate uh, below 50 per minute, type 2 heart block or complete heart block. There is a risk of complete heart block or asystole. Number five, amiodarone as a first-line antiarrhythmic therapy in supraventricular tachyarrhythmias. There's a higher risk of side effects than beta blockers or digoxin, verapamil or deltiazem. Number six, loop diuretic as a first-line treatment for hypertension because there are safer, more effective alternatives available. Number seven, loop diuretic for dependent ankle edema without clinical biochemical evidence or radiological evidence of heart failure, liver failure, nephrotic syndrome, or renal failure. Leg elevation or compression hosiery is usually more appropriate. Number eight, thiazide diuretic with current significant hypokalemia, potassium below 3, hyponatremia, uh, sodium below 130, hypercalcemia, calcium above 2.6, or with a history of gout, uh, because hypokalemia, hyponatremia, hypercalcemia, and gout can be precipitated by thiazide diuretic. Number 9, loop diuretic for treatment of hypertension, with concurrent urinary incontinence because it may exacerbate incontinence. Number 10, centrally acting 
antihypertensives, for example, metildopa, clonidine, moxonidine, domenidine, guanfacine, unless clear intolerance of or lack of efficacy with other classes of antihypertensives. Centrally acting antihypertensives are generally less well tolerated by older than younger people. Number 11, ACE inhibitors or ARBs uh, in patients with hyperkalemia. Number 12, aldosterone antagonists, spironolactone or aplerenone with concurrent potassium conserving drugs, for example, angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitors, ACE, or ARBs, angiotensin receptor blockers, or amyloride or triamterin, without monitoring serum potassium, because there is a risk of dangerous hyperkalemia, which is level above 6.0 millimol per liter. Potassium should be monitored regularly at least every six months. Number 13, phosphodiesterase type 5 inhibitors, for example, sildenafil, tadalafil, or vardenafil, in severe heart failure, characterized by hypotension, which is systolic blood pressure below 90 millimeters of mercury, or concurrent nitrate therapy for angina. There's a risk of cardiovascular collapse. Section C, antiplatelet and anticoagulant drugs. Number one, long-term aspirin in doses greater than 160 mg per day is a risk, increased risk of bleeding and no evidence of increased efficacy. Number two, aspirin with past history of uh, peptic ulcer disease without concomitant uh, proton pump inhibitor is a risk of recurrent peptic ulcer. Number three, aspirin, clopidogrel, dipiridamol, vitamin K antagonists direct thrombin inhibitors or factor 10a inhibitors with concurrent significant bleeding risk uh, it has uncontrolled severe hypertension bleeding that is is recent non-trivial spontaneous bleeding uh, in all of these there's a high risk of bleeding number four aspirin plus clopidogrel as a secondary stroke prevention unless the patient has coronary stents inserted in previous 12 months or concurrent acute coronary syndrome or has a high-grade symptomatic carotid arterial stenosis. There's no evidence of added benefit over clopidogrel monotherapy. Number five, aspirin in combination with vitamin K antagonist, direct thrombin inhibitor or factor 10A inhibitors in patients with chronic AF, atrial fibrillation. There's no added benefit from aspirin. Number six, antiplatelet agents with vitamin K antagonist, direct thrombin inhibitor or factor 10A inhibitors in patients with stable coronary cerebrovascular or peripheral vascular disease. Uh, there's no added benefit from dual therapy. Number seven, diclopidine in any circumstances. Clopidogrel and prasugrel have similar efficacy, stronger evidence, and fewer side effects. Number eight, vitamin K antagonist, uh, direct thrombin inhibitor, or factor 10A inhibitors for first DVT, deep vein thrombosis, uh, without continuing provoking risk factors, e.g. thrombophilia. For over six months, there's no proven added benefit. Number nine, 
vitamin K antagonists, direct thrombin inhibitors, or factor 10A inhibitors for first pulmonary embolus without continuing provoking risk factors, e.g. thrombophilia, for over 12 months. There is no, prov there is no proven added benefit. Number 10, NSAID and uh, uh, vitamin K antagonists, direct thrombin inhibitors or factor 10A inhibitors in combination. There is a risk uh, of major GI bleeding. Number 11, NSAIDs with concurrent antiplatelet agent or agents without uh, proton pump inhibitor prophylaxis. There's increased risk of uh, peptic ulcer disease. Section D, central nervous system and psychotropic drugs. Number one, tricyclic antidepressants with dementia, narrow angle glaucoma, cardiac conduction abnormalities, prostatism, or prior history of urinary retention. There is a risk of worsening these conditions. Number two, initiation of tricyclic antidepressant as a first line antidepressant treatment. There is higher risk of um, adverse drug reactions with tricyclic antidepressants than with SSRIs or SNRIs. Number three, neuroleptics with moderate marked antimuscarinic anticholinergic effects, for example, chlorpromazine, clozapine, flupentixol, flufenzine, picotiazine, promazine, zuclopentixol, with a history of prostatism or previous urinary retention. There is a high risk of urinary retention. Number four, SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors with current or recent significant hyponatremia, which means serum uh, sodium below 130 millimol per liter. There's a risk of exacerbating or precipitating hyponatremia. Number five, benzodiazepines for over four weeks. There's no indication for longer treatment. There's a risk of prolonged sedation, confusion, bad balance, falls, uh, road traffic accidents, and all benzodiazepines basically should be withdrawn gradually if taken for more than four weeks, as there is a risk of causing a benzodiazepine withdrawal syndrome if stopped abrupt, abruptly. Number six, antipsychotics, it asked, other than quetiapine and clozapine, in those with Parkinsonism or Levi body disease, there's a risk of severe extrapyramidal symptoms. Number seven, anticholinergics and antimuscarinics in patients with delirium or dementia. There is a risk of exacerbation of cognitive impairment. Number nine, neuroleptic antipsychotic in patients with behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia, unless symptoms are severe and other non-pharmacological treatments have failed. There's an increased risk of stroke. Number 10, neuroleptics as hypnotics, uh, unless sleep disorder is due to psychosis or dementia. There's a risk of confusion, hypotension, extrapyramidal side effects, and falls. Number 11, acetylcholine esterase inhibitors with a known history of persistent bradycardia, heart rate below 60 beats per minute, uh, with heart block 
or recurrent unexplained syncope or concurrent treatment with drugs that reduce a heart rate such as beta blockers, digoxin, piltiazem, verapamil, because there is a risk of cardiac conduction failure, syncope and injury. Number 12, phenothiazines as a first-line treatment since safer and more efficacious alternatives exist. Phenothiazines are sedative, have significant antimuscarinic toxicity in older people with the exception of prochlorperazine for nausea, vomiting, vertigo, chlorpromazine for relief of persistent hiccups, and levomepromazine as an antiemetic in palliative care. Number 13, levodopa or dopamine agonists for benign essential tremor. There's no evidence of efficacy. Number 14, first generation antihistamines because they are safer, less toxic uh, antihistamines now available. Section E, renal system. The following drugs are potentially inappropriate in older people with AKI, acute kidney injury, or CKD, chronic kidney disease, with renal function below particular levels of EGFR. Refer to SPC, summary of the product characteristics, data sheets, and local formulary guidelines. Number one, digoxin at a long-term dose greater than 125 micrograms per day if EGFR is below 30. There's a risk of digoxin toxicity if plasma levels not measured. Number two, direct thrombin inhibitors, for example, dabigatron, if EGFR is below 30, there's a risk of bleeding. Number three, factor 10A inhibitors, for example, rivaroxaban, fixaban, if EGFR is below 15, there's increased risk of bleeding. Number four, Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, NSAIDs, if EGFR is below 50, there's a risk of deterioration of renal function. Number five, colchicine, if EGFR is below 10, there's a risk of colchicine toxicity. Number six, metformin, if EGFR is below 30, there's a risk of lactic acidosis. Section F, GI, gastrointestinal system. Number one, prochlorperazine or metoclopramide with Parkinsonism. There's a risk of exacerbating Parkinsonian symptoms. Number two, proton pump inhibitors, PPI, for uncomplicated um, peptic ulcer disease or erosive peptic esophagitis at full therapeutic dosage for over eight weeks. Dose reduction or earlier discontinuation indicated. Number three, drugs likely to cause constipation, for example, anti-muscamarinic anticholinergic drugs, oral iron, opioids, verapamil, or aluminium antacids, in patients with chronic constipation where non-constipating alternatives are available, is a risk of exacerbating of constipation. The oral elemental iron doses greater than 200 mg per day, for example, Perosfumarate over 600 mg a day, perosulfate over 600 mg a day, or perosgluconate over 1800 mg a day. There is no evidence of enhanced iron absorption above these doses. Section G Respiratory System. 
Number one, tofilin as monotherapy for COPD. There are safer, more effective alternatives available. And uh, there's a risk of adverse drug reactions due to narrow therapeutic index. Number two, systemic corticosteroids instead of inhaled corticosteroids for maintenance in moderate severe COPD. There's unnecessary exposure to long-term side effects of systemic corticosteroids. Effective inhaled therapies are available. Number three, antimuscarinic bronchodilators, for example, ipratropium or tiotropium, with a history of narrow angle glaucoma, because it may exacerbate glaucoma, or bladder outflow obstruction, because it may cause urinary retention. Number four, non-selective beta blocker, whether oral or topical for glaucoma, with a history of asthma requiring treatment as a risk of increased bron bronchospasm. Number five, benzodiazepines with acute or chronic respiratory failure. It has partial uh, oxygen uh, pressure below eight kilopascals and partial CO2 pressure over 6.5. There's a risk of exacerbation of respiratory failure. Section H, musculoskeletal system. Number one, NSAID, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, other than COX-2 selective agents with history of peptic ulcer disease or GI bleeding, unless with concurrent proton pump inhibitor, PPI, or H2 antagonist. There's a risk of uh, peptic ulcer relapse. Number two, NSAID with a severe hypertension or severe heart failure, there's a risk of exacerbation of hypertension and heart failure. Number three, long-term use of NSAID over three months for symptom relief of osteoarthritis pain where paracetamol hasn't been tried. It is simple analgesics, preferable and usually as effective for pain relief. Number four, long-term corticosteroids over three months as monotherapy for rheumatoid arthritis. There's a risk of systemic corticosteroid side effects. Number five, corticosteroids, other than periodic intraarticular injections for monoarticular pain. For osteoarthritis, there's a risk of systemic corticosteroid side effects. Number six, long-term NSAID or colchicine for over three months for chronic treatment of gout where there is no contraindication to exanthine oxidase inhibitor, for example, alpurinol or febuxostat. The exanthine oxidase inhibitors are first-choice prophylactic drugs in gout. Number seven, COX-2 selective NSAIDs with concurrent uh, cardiovascular disease with a risk of myocardial infarction and stroke. Number eight, NSAID with concurrent corticosteroid without PPI prophylaxis increased risk of uh, peptic ulcer disease. Number nine, oral bisphosphonates with the current or recent history of upper gastrointestinal disease, uh, for example, dysphagia, uh, esophagitis, gastritis, duodenitis, or peptic ulcer disease, or upper GI bleed. There is a risk of relapse or exacerbation of uh, these diseases. Section I, urogenital system. Number one, antimuscarinic drugs with dementia 
or chronic cognitive impairment as a risk of confusion, agitation, or narrow angle glaucoma, there's a risk of acute exacerbation of a glaucoma, or chronic prostatism, there's a risk of urinary attention. Number two, selective alpha-1 blockers in those with orthostatic hypotension or micturition. Syncope, there's a risk of precipitating recurrent syncope. Section J, endocrine system. Number one, sulfonylureas with a long duration of action. Uh, for example, glibenclamide, clorpropamide, or glimepirid with uh, type 2 diabetes mellitus. There's a risk of prolonged hypoglycemia. Number two, thiosolidine dions, for example, rosiglitazone or paglitazone in patients with heart failure. There's a risk of exacerbation of heart failure. Number three, beta blockers in diabetes with frequent hypoglycemic episodes. There's a risk of suppressing hypoglycemic symptoms. Number four, estrogens with a history of breast cancer or venous thrombombolism has increased risk of reoccurrence. Number five, oral estrogens without progestogen in patients with intact uterus. There's a risk of endometrial cancer. Number six, androgens, male sex hormones, in the absence of primary or secondary hypogonadism, as a risk of androgen toxicity, no proven benefit outside of hypogonadism indication. Section K, drugs that predictably increase the risk of falls in older people. Number one, benzodiazepines. They are sedative, may cause reduced sensorium and impair balance. Number two, neuroleptic drugs may cause gait dyspraxia and Parkinsonism. Number three, vasodilator drugs, for example, alpha-1 receptor blockers, calcium channel blockers, long-acting nitrates, ACE uh, inhibitors, ARBs, with persistent postural hypertension, uh, it has recurrent drop in systolic blood pressure above 20 millimeters of mercury, as a risk of syncope and falls. Number four, hypnotic Z drugs, for example, Zolpiclon, Zolpidem, Zaleplon, may cause protracted daytime sedation and uh, ataxia. Section L, analgesic drugs. Number one, use of oral or transdermal strong opioids uh, for morphine, such as morphine, oxycodone, fentanyl, buprenorphine, dimorphine, methadone, tramadol, petidine, ventazosin, as first-line therapy for mild pain. WHO analgesic letter is not observed. Number two, use of regular, as distinct from when required, opioids without concomitant laxative. A risk, there's a risk of severe constipation. Number three, long-acting opioids without short-acting opioids for breakthrough pain, as a risk of persistent of severe pain. Section N, anti-muscarinic, anticholinergic drug burden. Concomitant use of two or more drugs with anti-muscarinic, anticholinergic properties, for example, uh, bladder antispasmodics, intestinal antispasmodics, tricyclic antidepressants, and first-generation antihistamines. There's a risk of increased anticholinergic toxicity 
Next, we go through the start toolkit, uh, which contains sections with medications that should be considered for people over 65, uh, where uh, no contraindication to prescription exists. Section A, cardiovascular system. Number one, vitamin K antagonists or uh, direct thrombin inhibitors or factor 10A inhibitors in the presence of chronic atrial fibrillation. Number two, aspirin from 75 milligrams to 160 milligrams per day in the presence of chronic atrial fibrillation where uh, vitamin K antagonists or direct thrombin inhibitors or factor 10A inhibitors are contraindicated. Number three, antiplatelet therapy, aspirin, clopidogrel, prasugrel or ticagrelor with a documented history of coronary, cerebral or peripheral vascular disease. Number four, antihypertensive therapy where systolic blood pressure is consistently above 160 and or diastolic blood pressure is consistently above 90. If the patient is diabetic, then the threshold is 140 or 90. Number five, statin therapy with documented history of coronary, cerebral or peripheral vascular disease unless the patient's status is end of life or age is over 85 years. Number six, ACE inhibitors uh, with systolic heart failure and or documented coronary artery disease. Number seven, beta blocker with ischemic heart disease. Number eight, appropriate beta blocker, bisoprolol, nebivolol, metoprolol or carvedilol with stable systolic heart failure. Section B, respiratory system. Number one, regular inhaled beta-2 agonist or antimuscarinic bronchodilator, example, ipratropium or tiatropium, for mild to moderate asthma or COPD. Number two, regular inhaled corticosteroid for moderate to severe asthma or COPD where, where uh, FEV1 is below 50% of predicted value and repeated exacerbations requiring uh, treatment with oral corticosteroids. Number three, home continuous oxygen with documented chronic hypoxemia. Um, it has partial O2 pressure below 8.0 kilopascals or 60 millimeters of mercury or saturated of uh, oxygen is below 89%. Section C, central nervous system and eyes. Number one, levodopa or dopamine agonist in idiopathic Parkinson's disease with functional impairment and resultant disability. Number two, non-tricyclic antidepressant uh, drug in the presence of major depressive symptoms. Number three, acetylcholine esterase inhibitor, for example, donepezil rivastigmine glantamine for mild to moderate Alzheimer's dementia or Levi body dementia. Number four, topical prostaglandin, prostamide or beta blocker for primary open angle glaucoma. Number five, SSRI or SNRI or pregabalin if SSRI contraindicated for persistent severe anxiety that interferes with independent functioning. Number six, dopamine agonist, propinirol, prampexol or loticotine for restless leg syndrome once 
iron deficiency and severe renal failure had been excluded. Section D, gastrointestinal system. Number one, PPI, proton pump inhibitor with severe uh, gastro gastroesophageal reflux disease or peptic structure requiring dilatation. Number two, fiber supplements, example bran, espagola, methylcellulose, stercolia, for diverticulosis with a history of constipation. Section E, musculoskeletal system. Number one, disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs with active disabling rheumatic disease. Number two, is phosphonates, vitamin D and calcium in patients taking long-term systemic corticosteroid therapy. Number three, vitamin D and calcium supplement in patients with known osteoporosis and or previous fragility fracture or fractures and or bone mineral density T-scores more than minus 2.5 in multiple sites. Number four, bone antiresorptive or anabolic therapy, for example, bisphosphonate, ranolate, teriparatate, and denosuvab, in patients with documented osteoporosis where no pharmacological or clinical status contraindication exists. PMDT scores above minus 2.5 in multiple sites. And if there are, or if there is a previous history of fragility fractures. Number five, vitamin D supplement in older people who are housebound or experiencing falls or with osteopenia. BMDT score is above one, but below minus 2.5 in multiple sites. Number six, xanthine oxidase inhibitors, for example, allopurinol, febuxostat, with a history of recurrent episodes of gout. Number seven, folic acid supplement in patients taking methotrexate. Section F, endocrine system. Number one, ACE inhibitor or ARB, angiotensin receptor blocker, if, if intolerance of uh, ACE inhibitor, in diabetes with evidence of renal disease, if asked, dipstick proteinuria or microalbuminuria above 30 mg per 24 hours with or without serum biochemical renal impairment. Section G, urogenital system. Number one, alpha-1 receptor block blocker with symptomatic prostatism where prostatecto prostatectomy is not considered necessary. Number two, 5-alpha reductase inhibitor with symptomatic prostatism where prostatectomy is not considered necessary. Number three, topical vaginal estrogen or vaginal pessary for symptomatic atrophic vaginitis. Section H, uh, analgesics. Number one, high-potency opioids in moderate to severe pain where paracetamol, NSAIDs or low-potency opioids are not appropriate to the pain severity or have been ineffective. Number two, laxatives in patients receiving opioids regularly. Section I, vaccines. Number one, seasonal trivalent influenza vaccine annually 
Number two, pneumococcal vaccine at least once after age 65, according to national guidelines. So that's all from Start Toolkit. It is commonly agreed that older people are at a greater risk of adverse effects from their medicines due to age-related changes in their major organs, which in turn alter pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. So when prescribing, reducing or stopping medication, prescribers should follow NICE guidelines, local guidelines, PNF or SPC. This has been a bit longer episode as I wanted to list all stop-start criteria, but I hope it's been useful. Thank you very much for listening. If you like it, please share with friends and family, stay well, and I'll speak to you at the next episode.